When I was 22 years old, I took one of the greatest trips of my life. I graduated college and bought a Eurail pass and went over to Europe. And I saw 20, it was a nine countries in 22 days. So nine countries in 22 days, and I slept on the train, and I slept in train stations, and got to see so much of, uh, so much of Europe. But there was, it was a whirlwind. I don't remember um, a whole lot because it was just a blur. But there was one place um, specifically that was just that was mesmerizing. And uh, in one city that was just magical, um, it was Florence, Italy. Um, and in Florence, there's the Duomo, which is this cathedral in the heart of the city. And... It was in this city that there was a story that I came across that just, um, it just grabbed my attention, captivated me, really. And um, the story goes back to the summer of, ni- of 1504. In 1504, there was, this, there was this block of marble that sat in front of the Duomo, and there were many artists who had tried to work on that um, block of art marble, tried to, tried to craft and work with it. And, uh, and many of them gave up, and they just said that it was unusable, that it was a waste, that it was worthless, really. But then there was one young artist, his name was a sculptor named Michelangelo, who at age 26 came across that block of marble, and he saw something that others didn't see. And so he, um, he, he bid for it, and in fact, he was commissioned um, to do the work, and this young sculptor went and built a fence around the block of marble, 17 feet tall, like two stories tall, built a fence around it, and then he built a shack. He built a, a, a shed, really, and it was big enough for, his, for a place to, to, place to sleep, a place to stay, a place to cook, the scaffolding inside, and, he, um, and in that space with his tools, he began to go to work. He began to work on that marble in obscurity. There were windows up tall that were high enough where the sunlight could get in and high enough where other people couldn't see what he was doing. And for three years, he worked. For three years, he worked on that block of marble, and he chiseled just Michelangelo in the marble uh, slab, and he actually worked on that until he was finished. And then when he was finished, he, he tore down the fence, and he, he took away the, the shack or the shed. And what was left, as you might know, is the David. The David, this, this sculpture that was just phenomenal and still to this day considered one of the greatest works of art of all time. I mean, the, the intricate detail, it is, it is a phenomenon in that the, the, the beauty and the, the brilliance of the craftsmanship and that people still travel from all over the world. And even in that day, people travel from all over to come and to see the David, this, this work of art. And historians tell us that Florence was at a low point when this happened. But there was something about this sculpture that spoke to the heart of people that really, they say, they had a sense of pride and of independence and a sense of courage. And they tell us that the David was actually a turning point for the city of Florence, that people began to flourish. See, that's what good art does. That's what good art does. The city began to, began to flourish. Now, the Pope asked Michelangelo, how'd you do it? Like, what was the secret to your genius? Look at what he says. He said, it's simple. He said, I just removed everything that is not David. Isn't that good? I, just, I, I want you to lock that in. I want you to take that in because that is what God wants to do. The master artist, that's what he wants to do in your life. He, he, it's simple. He wants to remove everything that is not Christ. That he would, he would work in our lives and that he would form Christ in us and, and chip away the things that are not Christ, that he would form Christ in us. There's a, there's a word we've been using in this series 
Lisa Harper last week gave the definition. I want to give to you again. The, the, the word is sanctification. It's not a word that we use often. It's a fancy word. It's a five-syllable word, five-dollar word. Theologians use sanctification. We don't use, we don't say, Brenda, how you doing? I haven't seen you since last Christmas. How, how are you and Carl in your sanctification? Go, like we don't, we don't work it into sentences. We, we, don't, we don't write it in documents at work. We don't use the word a lot. So let me give you a working definition that we'll use this series Um, sanctification, here's what that word means. Sanctification is the lifelong process by which those who follow Jesus are made more like him, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purposes of God. Let me give it to you one more time. Sanctification is the lifelong process by which those who follow Jesus are made more like him, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purposes of God. So let's break it down. It's a lifelong process. It takes a lifetime to learn how to live. There's no shortcuts. It's a lifelong process that goes through our whole life. And as followers of Jesus, it's the process by which the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells in us, that lives in us, works in us to to, to form Christ in us, in in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, and in our behavior, in our actions, that we would be more like Christ. If you wonder, what is God up to in the world? Well, what God wants to do is he wants to form Christ in us so that we can be who we were made to be, so that we can do what we were made to do. Sanctification, that's what God is doing. And, and there is a, there's a verse that's been, it's a key verse for this series. It's in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. And this verse reminds us that when God makes a disciple, when God makes disciples, he doesn't mass produce them, he hand makes them, one at a time. And here's the verse that's, that's a key verse for us. Ephesians 2, verse 10 is, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word handiwork goes from the Greek word poema, that we are God's, literally God's poem. That we are God's poem, that we are God's song, that we are God's handiwork, that we are God's masterpiece, that we are God's craftsmanship, that we are a work of art. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm a masterpiece. (laughs) Say, uh, I'm a work of art. I'll say, I'm a piece of work. Right? Because that's true too, right? And this the the reason that the reason we laugh is because we know, right? On one hand, if we're in Christ, we need to know I am a masterpiece. I am God's work of art. That when God looks at us, he sees his son, he sees Christ Jesus, and he is forming Christ as, but at the same time, I am. I am a piece of work. <laughs> like I am, I am in, I am in process. And, and this idea of God's work in our lives, it runs all throughout scriptures. In fact, the prophet Isaiah spoke to it in Isaiah 64, 8, when he says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The, the ancients understood that we are not self-made, that we are God-made that we've been made by God. We're not a random collection of molecules. We have been intentionally formed. We have been intelligently designed that we are made on purpose and for a purpose. You you have been made by God. I have been made by God. We go back to Genesis chapter one, verse 27, 27 verses into our story. We see it and it says, "So, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're made in the image of God. You are an image bearer. 
This is the foundation of dignity and worth in all human life that, that you have been made in the image of God. We have been made in the image of God. Every person that you see has been made in the image of God. What, what does that mean? Well, we've been made and formed with the capacity to love and to, and to be loved, for creativity and wisdom, to have character and compassion. We've been designed where we can know God, know about God. And we, can, we have a moral compass where we can discern right from, from wrong. We are not just animals. We are spiritual beings made in the image of God, made for the glory of God. In May 21st, 1972, at 11.30 a.m., a madman snuck into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and with a hammer, he attacked one of Michelangelo's greatest works, the Pieta. He struck it 15 times and did significant damage in the process. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan sneaks on the scene, and he, uh, he approaches Adam and Eve, and he doesn't attack them with a hammer. He attacks them with a thought, with a temptation, with an idea. He said, did God really say? See, he, he attacks their trust in God and trust in the goodness of God, and it's still a strategy that he uses today. Did God really say? Can you really trust God? Can you really trust God's goodness? And Adam and Eve took the bait, literally, and the sin, their sin, caused significant damage. It caused significant damage in their relationship with God. There's significant, significant damage in their relationship with one another and with all of creation. Neil Plantinga, a theologian and writer, listen how he defines sin. He defines sin this way. He says, sin is the vandalism of shalom. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And sin is the, is the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is, the, is, is, is more than a, than a feeling. It is it's the wholeness and harmony that we were created to enjoy with God, with others, and with all of creation. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. And no doubt over the past week, you've seen the images of what that looks like in the world. Over in Israel, with the terrorism and the rockets and the bullets and the murder and the hostages, it's just pure evil, the vandalism of shalom. And we pray for shalom. We pray for shalom in the world. And it's not just on the other side of the world. Vandalism, shalom, it's in our own cities, in our own Backyards in our own context. It's not as barbaric, but it's there. The violence, the racism, the injustice, corruption, slander, gossip, abuse, addiction, manipulation, deception, natural disasters, sickness, disease, poverty, food insecurity, homelessness. Have you ever had that thought like, this is not as it should be? Vandalism, shalom. Let's take gossip, for example. Um, gossip is the vandalism of shalom. Let me give you a definition of gossip, because I know you were asking, one, asking for one. I'll give you a definition of, of gossip. Gossip is when I tell you negative news about something I'm not a part of. Slander is when I tell you more bad news about someone I don't like. 
And it's the vandalism of shalom because with our words, we're attacking the image of God or someone's perception of another. And here's one of the reasons why it's vandalism of shalom is because the person that I'm talking to is unable to see that person in the same way ever again. It, it affects the way they see the other person. It affects our relationship because when I tell that person that news, that person hears that, and then they wonder, can I really trust you? Because are you just going to talk about me like you talk about all the other? See, gossip is the vandalism of shalom. See, it's, it's not just that vandalism of shalom happens out there. It happens in here. I've got my own stuff. I got my struggles with fear and with control and with pride and with envy, with comparison and contempt. I can serve somebody and quickly wonder, am I going to get the recognition? I can struggle and judge other people with the very same sins <laughs> that I deal with. I can be quick to forgive somebody I like. And I can hold on to bitterness or a grudge towards somebody that I don't. I can get caught up in the way that things look instead of the way that things really are. I can move so fast that I lose a sense of gratitude and take for granted the people I love the most. I can let a desire for pleasing people be more important than pleasing God. I can let something somebody says derail me, somebody that I don't even know, and steal my joy from being with the people that are the closest to me. I can let the pressure of life and leadership become all-encompassing and get so consumed with worry and solving problems in my head that don't even exist right now. I can focus more on what's happening around me than what's happening within me. I can do all of this before my second cup of coffee. See, I'm in process. Anybody else in process? We're all in process. What I need you to know is that God loves you as you are right now in process. God loves you as you are, not as you are supposed to be, because none of us are as we are supposed to be. God loves you. Do you believe it? It's important that you know this, and it's important that you believe this, because this is the foundation of all of God that he does in our lives, is that God is love, and it is his motivation for doing the work in us, that God loves us as we are right now. Do you believe it? Not God loves a person next to you, or God loves a person down the street, or God loves the lady next door, but God loves you. And when we take that and we receive it, because we can't give what we don't have. We receive God's love. In Romans and Paul wants us to get this. He wants us to understand this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, when we were at our worst, when we were at our lowest low, it was at that moment that God deemed that we were worth dying for. He sent his son. In that moment, Christ died for us. It, yes, we, were in, we are in process, but God loves us as we are in the same way that others saw that slab of marble and they said, it is a waste, it is worthless. But Michelangelo saw something that the others didn't see. He said that he saw the image inside. And as he began to chisel, he set it free. See, God loves you as you are. 
He loves you with all of your flaws, with all of your failures, with all of your mistakes, with all of your habits, with all of your hangups, with all of your hurts. God loves you as you are. And his work in our life is to form Christ in us. After the Pieta was attacked, the greatest artist in the world went to St. Peter's Basilica and they began to go to work. They went to work on Michelangelo's work on the Pieta. But before they just jumped in and went to work, they, they spent days and weeks studying it looking at it and listening to it, they said they wanted to discover the artist's original intention. And Jesus gives us the artist's original intention. In John chapter 10, 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The enemy comes to attack, to steal, kill, and destroy what God has made. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. I've come to set you free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's what God wants for your life. That's the reason sanctification takes place, because he wants you free. He wants to set you free from the things that entangle you, from the things that bind you, from the things that hold you back and hold you down. Jesus has come to set us free. And this is the work of sanctification. So how does God form Christ in us? I want to show you a pattern uh, Henry Nouwen writes about this. It's this pattern that shows up all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the gospel. It's a pattern in the life of Jesus. And we find it in, in John, I'm sorry, John's great, but Luke, Luke chapter six, we find it there. In Luke chapter six, verse 12, he writes that there's this pattern in the life of Jesus. And we'll see if we can pick it up. He says on verse, in verse 12, one of, these, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, and then he gives the name of them. And he says, and then he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And this is what Nowen writes. In Jesus' day and in a day in the life of Jesus, we see a very important pattern where he moves from solitude. He goes to spend the night in prayer. The night is for solitude. And then in the morning, he appoints 12 to be his apostles. That's community. And then after he forms a little community, they go down to a level place and do ministry. So this is the pattern that shows up in the life of Jesus over and over. The pattern, look for the pattern. It's solitude, community, and ministry. Solitude in that Jesus pulls away. The night is for solitude. In the morning is for solitude. Jesus pulls away from all the other voices and all the other distractions and all the other things that are going on, all the demands of the day, all the drama. Jesus pulls away, and in solitude, he meets with the Father, which is his most important relationship. And as he meets with the Father, he rests in the presence of God and in the favor and is filled with and experiences the freedom of God in that, in that solitude. Then he goes from solitude to community. These are the disciples. These are his closest relationships. And in those friendships, with those disciples. He gives and he receives. He shares heart and he receives heart. Jesus knows in this relationship, in that community, he receives from them and he gives to them. Those, that's friendship. And then he goes from community to ministry. And ministry is where he serves the needs of others, the demands of his calling. And for Jesus, this was ministry. This is his work. It's, it's teaching, healing, and helping for you, it may, be, it may be making or designing or education or leading or writing or singing or selling or managing or 
or caring for others or helping others or, or healing. Like we all have a calling. Our calling in life, our work in life is how we contribute to shalom. And so we all have a calling. But it's important that we have, that, that we have a pattern in our life of, of solitude and community and ministry, especially as followers of Jesus. If we're followers of Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, what's your pattern for life? Because the world has a pattern too. Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? Wake and go and strive and grind and hustle and hurry and produce and use and abuse and, and achieve and accumulate and buy and take and devour and purchase and consume and numb out and then repeat the next day. That's the pattern of this world. And the pattern of this world produces a certain kind of product. And if we want a different kind of product, we got to choose a different pattern. So the question is, Jesus, what is the pattern? And Jesus said, there are ancient ways that will produce rest and peace in, in a pattern. If we want the Prince of Peace to produce peace in our lives, shalom inside, we have to choose a different pattern than the one that the world offers to us. Solitude, community, and ministry. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about community and ministry. But today, I want us to talk about solitude. Let's have a conversation about solitude because I believe if, the, if you ask the disciples, what's the secret, man? What's the secret to Jesus' life, to his power, to his strength? What's the secret to the impact that he made? What's the secret to the way Jesus lived his life? I think they'd say he's sneaky. <laughs> and not sneaky how like you and I are sneaky, like getting another couple Oreos. Not that kind of sneaky, a different kind of sneaky. And they're like, Jesus is all the time sneaking away to be with the Father. There are times where people would come and they'd go to the disciples, where's Jesus? And they're like, we well, all know. He sneaks away while it's still dark. Before anybody else gets up, Jesus sneaks away to be alone with the Father, to get what only the Father could give to him, to be filled up so that he had something to give. Sneaky Jesus. Sneakyjesus.com. I don't know if anybody owns it, but somebody go buy it, go to GoDaddy, but sneakyjesus.com. Jesus would sneak away with the Father. This is solitude. Solitude, let me give you a definition of solitude. Solitude is intentionally withdrawing from the forces of the world around us to be shaped by the presence of God. Solitude is intentionally withdrawing. Isolation is forced on us. Solitude is intentionally withdrawing from the forces of this world, from the forces of the world around us to be shaped by the presence of God. Solitude is being alone, but, but not lonely. It's choosing to be with God. Psalm 46 says this way, he says, be still and know that I am God. See, it's in that place of stillness and solitude that we realize that our hearts realize that there's a God and we're not him. That we have a Messiah, that we have a savior, that we have one that we can rest because he's God. And some of us live in that place of not being able to rest because there's not the place of stillness and solitude. And Jesus knew in order to do the thing that he was called to do, it required him to to have solitude in his life. We need, we desperately need solitude in our lives, times to pull away from the vices and from the voices and for the, from the drama and from the distractions. It's intentionally withdrawing from those things to hear from God. Jesus gives us a secret in Matthew chapter six. It's his first message. He gives us a secret in his first message. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. That word means actor. Don't be like the religious actors. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. 
But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, if prayer is all a performance, if that's all prayer is, very well, you just got your reward. If prayer is just to be seen by others, you've missed it. But he said, go to your, go to your secret place. Go to the inner room, that, that word inner room. What he's talking about, and they understood, because in Jesus' day, the houses only had two rooms. They had an outer room and an inner room. The outer room was where people lived. It was the big room. It's where people lived and where they ate and where they, where they slept. It was like the entire family all slept in one room. And so Jesus is saying, go to your inner room. The inner room is literally the storage closet. It's just one other room, just a, a tiny little room over to the side. And so the picture people would understand is this. When you're laying down and it's time to pray, get up, be real quick, be real quiet. Step over Billy Bob, step over Sally Joe, and go over to the inner room. Close the door and get in the closet down and talk to your father in heaven there's a big god in that little room and you have a conversation with your father in heaven who sees you see all the prayer all the prayer doesn't need to be done in public there should be a place in our lives where jesus is teaching where we just commune with the father think what he's saying let's build a shack build a shed Create some space. Because God does his greatest work in obscurity. In the private place. In the secret place. Jesus is saying the secret is the secret. You're like, what's the secret? The secret place. Get away from all the other voices, all the other vices, and meet with your father. Michelangelo formed his masterpiece in obscurity. It's how God forms his masterpiece in our lives. So if you want a different product, you've got to choose a different pattern. So let's get real practical. I want to give you three takeaways. Three takeaways from Michelangelo and Matthew 6 about solitude. The first is build a fence. Build a what? Build a fence. Fences do two things. They protect what's valuable and they keep threats out. One of the most valuable things you have, commodities you have in your life is your time. Because once you spend it, it's gone. So build a fence around your time with God. You're like, how long should I spend with God? As long as you want to. You say, well, I don't want to. Well, ask him for that. He can help you with that. Start there. God, would you help me want you like I want to want you? Because I don't want you like I want to. He can deal with that. You know why? Because that's, that's authenticity. It's not a performance. Say, God, would you help me want you? And then what we have, oftentimes we build space and we build time for things that matter to us. So we go on our calendar and we make an appointment with God. We keep, we keep dentist appointments. God bless Dennis. But what about an appointment with your father in heaven who loves you? You say, make an appointment. Let's just make an appointment. Let's keep it. And let's build a fence around that time. Because there are all kinds of threats and we fight all the forces of this world. That, that want to take that time, that want to remove that time. There's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. It says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. 
whose walls are broken down. We build up fences and we protect that time that is valuable, that's, that's better than, than the news or snooze or email or breakfast. Build a fence. Build a fence. Second, close the door. Close the door. Here's what, here's what I mean by that. We close the door that allows us to focus. Man, how many, how many of you are like me and that when, you're, when you want to be alone with God or when you want to spend time in prayer, all kind of distractions start, start going in. I don't know how much of that is me or how much of that is the evil one. <laughs> but what I've started doing is I write down the distractions. I write down the things and I'm like, I'll come back to those later. And oftentimes what's on that list of things are the very things that God wants me to surrender to him. So God, I surrender everything and everyone to you. And so in that time, I, I close the door. And oftentimes closing the door means taking our phone and leaving it somewhere that we're not. Or there's actually an app to help us with prayer. You know what it's called? It's called Power Off. All of our phones have it. <laughs> Anne Lamont said this way. She said, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. So we unplug ourselves from the news, from everything that's going on in the world. We get alone with God. And in that place, we, we close the door. We ruthlessly eliminate distraction. And some of the distraction is wanting to be seen in that time. You know how I know that? It's because when people post up their devotion time with God, hashtag quiet time, hashtag blessed life, hashtag, see, the temptation is for it to be a performance. I'd rather say, you know what? Your father in heaven sees what's done in secret and he will reward you. Build a fence, close the door. Number three, prayer is creative work. Prayer is creative work. It's more art than science. I want you to think more time with your heavenly father who loves you than finding the perfect form, more perfect father than perfect formula. And be with him. You're like, well, what do I do in that time? Praising is prayer. Read, read the word. Oftentimes, I'll look for a psalm that speaks to where I'm at, and I'll just make that psalm my prayer back to God. Or just communicating, just sharing your heart with God, or slowing down and just listening, being still. Prayer for me these days looks a lot more like listening than talking. And I'll just ask questions. I'll ask questions to God. And God doesn't always answer my question. I've never heard an audible voice, but I'll hear a still, small voice in here oftentimes. And sometimes God doesn't answer the question that I'm asking right when I ask it. He'll answer it later on in his word or answer it later on in the day. Or it might be a week or a month from then that God answers those questions. But it's asking questions like, God, what do I need to know about you right now? Search my heart. Where am I anxious? Where am I fearful? What do I need to surrender? What lies am I believing? Where has shalom been vandalized in me? Where have I contributed to the vandalism of shalom in others? You know where this list of things came from? It came from that guy's journal over there. I took him out of there. Went, no, I'm just kidding. It came from mine. And in God's kindness, he reveals the things that we can't see. See, it's his kindness that leads to repentance, not our repentance that leads to his kindness. So in his kindness, he reveals these things to me so that I can take these things and I say, God, would you help me? Because <laughs> I can't get rid of these things on my own. By your grace, God, would you help me with these? Would you give me truth that speaks to these places, to these wounds that I have, to these hurt that I have, these habits that I have? And God, in his kindness, said, would you just slow down? 
and let me get to work. Because he sees the masterpiece. He sees Christ in you. He said, I just want to chisel away the things that are keeping you from freedom. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But the Father wants to free us up. But for him to free us up, we got to slow down. We got to be still. We got to build a fence around that time. We have to close the door on distraction and offer up our lives and pray a prayer or something like this. Father, would you make me more like Jesus? And the answer to that prayer is always yes. He was like, I was waiting for you to ask. Because you're his handiwork. You're his masterpiece. Let's pray together. Father, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thank you that when we meet you in the secret place, because your presence is there, there's always freedom. And Jesus, right now, we take you at your word. We take you at your word. Your Father in heaven sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you. We receive the truth that, God, your presence is the reward. Your spirit is the reward. Your nearness, your word, your truth, your shalom. So, God, would you give us, even right now, would you give us a picture? Would you give us an image of where that place needs to be, needs to be for us? Maybe it's in our room. Maybe it's on a back porch. Maybe in a living room, a chair, a couch. Maybe a place on campus. A place in our apartment. Would you give us an image right now? Holy Spirit, would you help us see a place? And then would you give us the discipline, the self-control to mark that time on our calendar? God, would you give us the grace to choose that and to meet with you? And would we stay there until we're full? Would we stay there and, God, would you develop in us an appetite for more of you? And God, I pray that in these days of this week, in the days ahead this week, that, God, we would see you bring freedom to our lives. We'd see you untangle us. We'd see you bring shalom in here so that we can contribute to your shalom out there. Would you sanctify us? Would you make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We want to offer something today at the end of service. We're going to have a prayer team down front. If you've got an area in your life where you need prayer, we would love to pray with you, and we'll keep the conversation going on Crafted next week. We'll see you back then.